Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 23rd, 2016. This is episode 1855 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Tuesday show. That makes it a Just Jack show, and that means you guys chose this show by your voting for the uh, the poll on the forum And today we're going to do actually the one that for August had the most votes, coming in with 13.3% of the vote split against 10 competitors. Electric canning for the busy family, food storage all year long. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this one. It probably won't be as long as the typical show, because there's not a tremendous amount of material to cover, but I do think it'll enlighten you to the advantages of electric canning and give a lot of you guys that have this queasiness, this fear, this... Oh my God, we'll die if we use an electric canner. We have to use Grandma's big old all-American canner or we'll all die. Um, a set of assurances that, no, that won't happen. And you can certainly use the canner that we're going to mainly talk about today, which is the Shard 9.5-quart smart pressure canner, to do water bath canning. It even has settings for water bath canning. And, of course, we all know that would be safe because you're using vinegars or acids or things like that. But I'm not going to really talk about I'm going to talk about the pressure canning functionality of it mostly today, figuring that if you want to can tomatoes or you want to you know, do up jalapenos with some vinegar uh, so that you can water bath can, you'll be able to figure out how to do that, and you won't have a big concern because it's always the canning of meats and soups and anything that's low acid that creates the most amount of fear with good cause because botulism is bad news. But I'll tell you... Uh, some things you can do today for that extra little bit of insurance policy. And I'll tell you how to use this canner. I'll tell you the one other canner that I recommend, and there's only two that I recommend for electric canning. And uh, I definitely recommend one highly over the other, and I'll explain all of that in a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. This year I have two main segments today. The Lone Star Education Windfall. I have Bleeding Kansas. And then in the other news section, I have Cocaine is Isolated from Coca Leaves. Until now, European scientists could not get enough fresh leaves from South America to isolate the alkaloid. 
Florence Nightingale institutes good hygiene standards in military hospitals, although her lady with the lamp image is making the rounds at night might have been exaggerated. She did professionalize nursing in the years following the war. And boy, howdy, would it be needed. I'm just saying. Rayon is patented this year. It is nicknamed Mother-in-Law Silk. Why would you do that? Probably because the early versions of fabric caught on fire easily. Oof. Some people, I guess, don't like their mother-in-law. Anyway, I'm going to read the Lone Star Education Windfall. The United States federal government has appointed almost $8 billion, I'm sorry, $8 million to settle Texas debt and any expenses incurred with the recent border treaty with Mexico, meaning paying the Texas Rangers to patrol the border. For reasons that are complex and difficult to explain, about $4 million is left over, or about $83 million in today's money. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Texas spends the money on government, buildings, and pet projects, as one might expect. The money is also distributed to countries which use the money to build courthouses and such. But Texas does something that would be unexpected in modern times. It sets aside half the money for education, community, religious, and even homeschooling, although that's called field schools. At this time, students meet under a tree in a one-room schoolhouse near the fields. There are no public schools yet. And the state cannot directly tax residents for education. It's illegal. Communities organize their own schools, and the state reimburses them on a per-student basis. Whatever Texas was spending per student in 1854, they almost double it in 1855. The teacher receives the lion's share of the increase. And believe me, no teacher in Texas ever went hungry or could not find a place to sleep. This is all the states. This is all to the state's credit. But by 1860, the state will be deeply in debt again. My take by Alex Shrugged. Even though Horace Mann was experimenting with the Prussian unified system of education, government schools didn't get rolling until after the war between the states, otherwise known as the American Civil War, which was technically not a civil war, but don't get me started on that one. The point is that education in the United States at the time was uneven. Ethnic groups within Texas had different educational priorities, and each made its own arrangements as they saw fit. No one was bellyaching about how their kids were forced to learn something that didn't fit with their worldview or religious convictions because people with different views didn't mix. If they needed classes taught in German, Spanish, or Dutch, the parents paid for it or made it happen. It is also it is. <clears throat> Also, modern, uh, also reasons why we self-separate is because we prefer to inter, um, hold on. It is a modern belief, almost a religious conviction that mixing cultures results in harmony and understanding. I feel like I'm trapped in West Side Story musical and I don't know how to dance. There are reasons why we self-separate. It's because we prefer to interact with people who share a baseline understanding with us. Getting along with people I already more or less understand is hard enough, but the government wants me to get along with people different than I am. Fine, I can do that, but if I don't want to do that, I should be able to avoid it without the government telling me I'm bad. I'm not bad. I'm just tired. Yeah, I could go down that hole. I could go down the modern school hole, but I'm not. I'm going to go down the tax hole and how this is a trap. It's a trap. Uh, and the government paying for services is a trap. So how could Texas go from having, you know, uh, in, in today's money, a, a massive surplus, a hundred and uh, what was it, a hundred and some million, uh, $83 million in today's money as a surplus. They take half of it, so that's uh, $41 million in today's money. Now, I think you have to understand something else about it. Like running a school in Texas in 1855 did not cost what it costs to run a school anywhere in the United States in, in 2016. So that might not sound like that much of equivalent money, you know, $40, $41 million dollars. 
Um, but it's a lot when you think about what they were doing. It wasn't that hard. What you paid somebody at the time. You know, I mean, to, to be a teacher or whatever. So how do you go from that to being back in debt in only five years? Deeply in debt. Well, part of it probably was this whole school idea, right? And, 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 and the government paying for even part of it, even if it was self-organized. See, this is the trap. So let's say the government raises, I don't know, today's money, $80 billion, and says, here, Texas, run your schools with $80 billion. Okay, and let's say that we can run the schools in Texas for $20 billion a year. They spend a hell of a lot more than that, by the way, but just to make it easy. Um, fine, so they hire teachers, they set everything up, they get it going, they start spending $20 billion a year. Over five years, let's say they're even able to... To, to figure out some way to invest that money to get a sixth year out of it. What do you do in year seven? You need new money. This is where the tax trap comes in. As soon as the government starts paying for something, then they have to tax for it or the program fails. That's all there is to it. It's the only way it works once government gets involved. Here's the other problem. Once the government begins to do something, it becomes expected that it be done. And this creates the cycle of our own oppression. Let me explain it to you. Let's say that I live next door to you guys, right? Like, which, any one of you listening, just imagine you yourself live next door to Jack Spirico. And today, I show up at your door, I knock on the door, and I say, hey, how you doing? You say, hi, Jack, good to see you. I was just listening to you on the computer. And I say, well, you know what? I was thinking you're my neighbor, and I should do something nice for you. So here's a couple sticks of biltong or a pie, or whatever you like, a, 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 a jar of tea, whatever, right? And you say, gee, thanks, Jack, I really appreciate that. Now, over the next few months, every day I show up with your biltong, or your pie, or your six-pack of beer, or whatever it is that does it for you. And at first, you're like, dude, look, you really don't have to, you know, not every day. And But after a few months, you're like, this is pretty cool, and I guess he wants to do it. And let's say a couple of years go by, and every day I bring you your pie or your beer or your biltong or your, your can of beans or whatever it is you want every day. And uh, remember, you, you never asked for it, and I never was required to give it to you. I just did it, and you did it, and it kind of works for us. Now, let's say that two years go by, and on day, you know, day one of year three, I knock on the door, say, hey, how you doing? And you say, uh, good to see you. I go, I just came by to say hello. How's it going? You know what you're going to say? Where's my pie? Where's my beer? Where's my biltong? Jerk. You always, I was, I, and now imagine that I was giving you something every day so significant that it literally put a meal a day on your family's table. And after two years, you guys had built your, your, your life around the, and you're not a prepper like you are really, right? You're like the average sheep. Right, you 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 you've come to depend on that, and now I just say, well, I'm I'm not doing that anymore. You're going to be angry at me, even though I had no obligation whatsoever. That is government services. That is the trap that government services are. Once they're established, they're very difficult to remove, and the people receiving them come to expect that they be provided at quote unquote no cost. Of course, nothing's free, but we're now we have our great grandchildren. Uh, being leveraged to pay for what we get today. And in 1855, it wasn't possible for them to do that in perpetuity. Today, it's not impossible in perpetuity either, but it is possible for a lot longer. And therefore, 
much greater pain to exist at the end of it. So with that knocked out, let's get into the main topic of today's show, electric canning for food storage for the busy family all year long. Let me, let me take you back to when I was, uh, you know, about 12, 13 years old and my grandmother, uh, was going to can for a day, right? She's going to spend a day canning. Either that day or the day before, I had probably spent a lot of time in the garden and I picked a lot of stuff and she was going to probably make one thing that day. She was either going to make, you know, canned pickles, uh, or she was going to, let's, let's go to something pressure can though. Let's say she was going to make chow chow. No, that would be water bath can in his way. Let's say we were uh, going to do beans. Beans had to be pressure canned because they're, you know, unless you want to make dilly beans out of them or something like that, uh, they, they have to go into the pressure canner to be put away. And that was a, that's a great one because we grew several very long rows, double rows of, of green beans and it was a staple in our garden. So that would be a good example of something I might have filled buckets of. And on canning day, right, this is what would happen. I would be giving some some task it might have been to cut the beans up and whatever and get them washed and into a certain state and then the next command was get out of here go away leave me alone go go play go do something go fishing get out of the way why because the kitchen was going to be hot and she was going to be going for hours and hours all day that day two or three batches even in the big giant thing it would take that to get it all done And at the end of that day, when I came home, I knew she would be tired, and I always tried to say, like, do you not have to make dinner tonight? And my grandmother was the kind of person you can't tell that to, and but she'd be exhausted, right? And the house would be hot and steamy, and it, it was a lot of work, and it really was a thing of get out of my kitchen. Right? She was nice about it, nicer than I am when I tell people to get out of my kitchen, but that's how she was, because it was a lot of work. And once you were no longer useful to the work, you were just in a way. And it wasn't because you were a kid. I mean, my grandfather wasn't allowed in, my dad, nobody, the uncles, stay out of the kitchen. If you're passing through, you better pass through quickly, right? By the way, it was the only way to get out of the house was to go through the kitchen, so that made it interesting. Once you left, you didn't want to come back. And the first time I ever pressure canned uh, myself on my own, I did some beef stew, and I got an understanding of why she felt that way, even though I had only made enough stew with my great big brand new at the time All-American pressure canner to, I could easily do one batch of that stew, and I was done. Um, I got an understanding for why she felt that way. I imagined myself with like four or five-gallon buckets full of green beans and doing them all in a day and wondering what that would really be like and how exhausted I would be. And while I continued to can here and there, I didn't can that much. I canned when we had a windfall of something. The, the, the concept that, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make like a big pot of beef stew, cut it in half and can four quart jars of it, uh, or eight pint jars of it if you want individual servings, was, was way out of my head. It's kind of like my epiphany when I learned about small batch mead making. Before I learned how to do small batch meads in one gallon batches, the concept of doing all the work it took to make a gallon of mead To, with it being the same as doing five gallons, it was like, no, I, I can't spend and how long it's going to take, how long I'm going to have to wait to, to taste it, and, and what have you. And when I realized, well, there's a way to do it in 15 minutes, and including cleanup, and be done with it, and then you just got a little gallon jug sitting somewhere doing its thing, and you can make a gallon a week, or a couple gallons this week, a couple gallons next week, and make four or five gallons a month easily, and have all this variety, it changed my view. Well, electric canning did that for me, too. Um, because I realized that with a, a kind of set it and forget it 
technology and a unit that could both cook and can, it would open up new things. And we don't usually make our soups and stuff in an electric canner, but you can if you want to. I usually just make a big old giant cauldron of soup and then, you know, or stock or whatever. And we'll talk about some of the things I make and how to make them in a bit. And then, you know, we just decide, well, we're going to probably, because when you do that, this is the other problem I always had. I don't make a small pot of soup. I don't make a pot of soup that most people make. I make a giant pot of soup. Because if I'm going to do it, it's no more work to make double the size. It's really not. It's a little more cutting stuff up. But in the end, it's, it's all about a big pot there simmering until everything's done. So what happened is my, my, my eyes was always bigger than our appetites for soup over a duration. And we found that when we freeze soup, we tend to forget that we froze soup and we tend to be bad about, cause we finally give up and say we're gonna put this soup in a, in a tub and freeze it. We're bad about marking it and like a year later we find this weird icicle scientific experiment in the freezer and go, what is that? And a lot of times we end up discarding it at that point. So, I had that issue. Well, when I realized with this electric canner, I could just fill up basically. There's a little more to it. I'll give you the whole process in a second. But I basically fill up some jars and put lids on them, stick them in the canner and push a button and walk away and come back later and, you know, basically just put them away. And there, again, there is more to this, but that's, that's the real essence of it that I could just make that big thing, fill up four jars right away while it's nice and piping hot, the hot packet, get it going, and as soon as it's done, just put the jars on the shelf where they're visible or into the pantry where they're in rotation so they're seen, so they're used, so they're thought about, uh, not at the bottom of the chest freezer or whatever, and then I can just put away the canner. And all of a sudden it opened up a whole new world for me. But I want to start out with why I only recommend two electric canners And why these canners are absolutely safe for pressure canning, no matter what article you read by what misinformed party online. I don't care if they're the American Canning Association. I don't care who they are. If you say this isn't safe, you're wrong because you don't understand the technology. First of all, the two that I recommend, one is the Shard 9.5 Smart Pressure Canner. The other one, you've seen probably in infomercials, is the Power Pressure Cooker XL. Let me say the Power Pressure Cooker XL is a unit I own. It's what started me on this path, but today it is a distant second to the shard. So much so that if you don't already own one, there is no reason, no reason at all to buy the Power Pressure Cooker XL. It doesn't make sense. Yes, they now make it in larger sizes, including a 10-quart size, which is technically larger than the shard. The problem, unless you're committed to canning pint jars, don't buy it. It's just a little bit too shallow to close the lid when you put a quart jar in it. So it can, because, because of that it's a little wider, it can can more pints than the shard, but canning pints really isn't something I'm into. You know, quarts are really the way forward as far as I'm concerned. I'll do half pints sometimes with like water bath canning for like jalapenos and stuff like that, but, or tomatoes or whatever, but quarts just, make more sense to me. You're doing all this work, and you're going to put food up. A quart is not a huge serving. If I can beef stew in a quart, and we split it in half, it's two servings perfectly for Dorothy and I, and, and we're good. We generally don't eat different things for dinner. Or our squash soup, again, if we do a pint, we pull it out. We have to pull two out. Why not just can them in quart jars and be done? 
So I, I don't recommend the Power Pressure Cooker XL if you're choosing between the two because it doesn't handle the bigger jars. That's, that's one reason. So let's go to the second reason. So when I found the Power Pressure Cooker XL, I recommended it. A lot of you guys bought it. And I heard from a couple people that were a little bit disappointed because Power Pressure Cooker people are not real good about telling you this in advance of your purchase. But when you do pressure canning, and I'll explain why in a minute, once you're over a 1,000 feet of elevation, you generally need to take your pressure from a 10-pound pressure to a 15-pound pressure. And the Power Pressure Cooker XL only comes with a 10-pound weight for the pressure relief valve. We call that a petcock is another word for it. The shard comes with a 10-pound and a 15-pound allowing you to can at higher pressures if you're at elevations near or above a 1,000 feet. I do have to admit, they look identical in form and fit and function to me. Okay, And this is just a thought here. But for now, I have yet to figure out how to change it. And this is one thing, maybe you people that own one of these, they're at higher elevation that switched it over to the 15, can tell me how the heck do I change it because I'm afraid to pull on something and break it. It comes with the 10-pound installed, and the 15 comes with it as an extra. You can swap them out. I'm thinking they look almost exactly the same. I'm not sure of this, but I'm thinking if that's the case, those of you stuck with the Power Pressure Cooker XL because you bought it, it might be possible to get the 15-pound weight from the shard and install it into the power pressure. I'm not sure that's a good idea. I'm just saying it might be possible and it might work. I don't know. And here's why you may not want to do it even if it fits because it may not be designed to work with it. I'm not sure, okay? The reason that you have to change that is the whole thing that's going on with pressure canning. When we water bath can, we bring water to a boil, and of course that happens at 212 degrees. As we move further up in elevation, water actually blows boils at temperatures below 212. The 212 spec is sea level specification. Once you get to 1,000 feet, you start to drop significantly. When we pressurize steam, we can heat steam, which is just another form of water, to above 212 degrees. So I believe it's 240 or 245 degrees, somewhere in that range is what we're looking to achieve. And when we heat foods to that level, through and through, not only do we kill off all of the typical bacteria we think of, we also kill off botulism. Now, botulism can reproduce in an anaerobic environment. That means without oxygen. And it can do so in a way where there's no smell or taste or anything funny or off about it. And it's not going to necessarily bulge a can or something like that. Like you see a bulge can, you don't use it, right? Because something's gone wrong. So that's a big concern, and that's the number one thing that really can hurt you with canning is that botulism. Well, as the boiling point of water drops, the temperature of pressurized steam drops correspondingly. So by simply going from 10 pounds of steam pressure up to 15, you're able to achieve that higher steam pressure. That's why the shard comes with the two petcocks, and that's why if you're above a 1,000 feet, it's a must for you if you want to pressure can with electrics. Now, once that's all said, here's why these things are safe. And I'm going to tell you right now, all of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt, all the FUD that's online about these things, oh, my God, you'll die. Number one, they keep calling them pressure cookers. Okay, Most of the electric pressure things out there are pressure cookers. And they're right. You do not pressure can with a cooker. You pressure can with a pressure cooker slash pressure canner. 
Okay, Both of these units are pressure cooker slash canners. They are designed and specced from the manufacturer to be safe for pressure canning. The, the manufacturer states this. If that's not enough, here's the other fundamental reality. When you use an electric pressure canner, it's no different than using an electric stove with an old-style canner. It doesn't matter what makes the water heat up. It doesn't matter what causes the steam to get pressure. It just matters that. So when you have a 15-pound pressure valve on an electric device with a computer in it that is designed so it won't start venting steam until 15 pounds and it runs for a duration with your canning recipe, you've done the same thing inside. It's just been less work for you. Anybody that wants to have a fit about this, because I've had people have fit about this. I had people write me like thinking we're all going to die. And we've been doing this for two years and we're not dead yet. Okay? All right? Just relax. These things work. New technologies actually do work. There was a time when you picked up your phone, and you stuck your finger in a hole, and you turned a dial, okay? And it went click, 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 and then you got to talk to somebody. Now you carry a device in your pocket. You can pick it up and say, call grandma, and it calls her for you. It knows what to do. Technologies do evolve. The canner is a very old piece of technology. It is about time that it evolved, and I don't think these will be the last two, but I only recommend these two because they're the only ones that I know of so far that are warranted by their manufacturers to be safe for this process. Okay, let's talk about the basic canning process. I'm going to tell you my way, and I'm going to tell you the way you're supposed to do it because you'll die if you don't, and again, again, that's bullshit. I'll explain why. So what I do when I can is I generally take my four to eight quart jars, I stick them in the, they're already clean. I've already washed them. Maybe I rinse them out if I'm a little, you know, they look a little dusty or something. I throw them in the dishwasher. I turn on the heat dry cycle while I'm doing everything else. It gets them nice and hot. I'm not trying to sterilize them. I'm not trying to sanitize them. I don't care. They're going to go into a pressurized steam vessel. Okay? They're going to be in 240 degree steam for somewhere between 30 to 75 to 80 to 90 minutes, depending on what I'm doing. It's it's okay. The reason I want the jars hot is so when I dump the hot packed fluid into them, they don't crack. That's the only reason I'm even doing that. My 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 rings and my lids, I set them on the counter on a paper plate so they don't get anything on them. I don't wash them. I don't put them in a pot of simmering water. They're going to go into a steam pressure vessel for 30 to 90 minutes, okay? Anything that touches them is going to die. If I was that worried about them being like like I was making beer and I was trying to sanitize them, what about the food? Think, okay? So I set them there. I try to use no water with, with cleanup on the day that I'm canning. Water creates mess, all right? Water goes in the canner, etc. So I get my whatever I'm going to hot can, and I take my hot jars out. I set them on a wooden cutting board so that they're not messing up my beautiful granite tile, even though it's probably, you know, not really necessary. I just feel better about it, and it's my granite that I paid a lot of money for, so that's what I do. And I take a, a, a canning funnel that I've rinsed off with water. That's all I've done to it. I put it in my can, and I ladle in all my stuff. And then I put a, a, a canning lid, and I've stopped using Tattlers. I've had too many failures. I know they supposedly fix it. I'm going back to old-school ball canning uh, centers, lids, and I put it on. I take a band. I screw that on, just finger tight. And then 
I take a canning tongs, I'll talk about it in a second, and I put it in the canner. I do that three more times, because four jars fit in there. I put the lid on, and then I set the time according to the recipe. And there's a certain amount of water that goes in there, and I'm not going to get too procedural, because you can look this up, and information comes and tells you what to do with the unit. All right? You set it in there. You set your valve the way it's supposed to be. You set your timer. It takes a while for the unit to heat up to the point where it actually starts to produce the pressure high enough. Then steam starts coming out. The clock starts running, and you don't do anything. You go off and do your other stuff, like put the soup that you're now canning into a bowl and sit down and eat it with your significant other, or take the chili that you're canning and sit in front of the TV set on a Sunday afternoon because football season's coming back really, really soon. My Steelers are sucking in the preseason, but that usually doesn't matter, so I'm hoping they're better, but it doesn't matter. I like football. It's one of my mental escapes, and you eat your chili while your other chili for games in the future is canning. It takes a tone when it goes off. There's a way you release the pressure. You let it sit for a while. You can let it sit all freaking day if you're only going to do one batch. When you're ready and you've done everything you need to do and you can follow the instructions, you open it, you take your canning tongs, you take your jars out. I set them onto a wooden cutting board. Also because I think, you know, when you have things that are wet and steamy now, they can slip. And if you slip and drop it onto like a granite countertop, you're likely to break a very hot, you get where it goes, napalm, type thing going on. A lot of times when you open them, they're still boiling inside and all. You let them sit. Don't touch the lids. Don't touch anything. They'll seal down. If it failed, the lid will not seal. Once that's done, I leave the rings on the jars. You do not have to. They've served their purpose. They're not going to keep the lid from coming loose. That's not how it works. But I feel that once they're on there, I give them a little bit more of a tightening once they've cooled down, and I label them and put them on the shelf. That's it. That's what I do. Now, here's some things you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get a little thing like a little spudger, bubbler thing, and you're supposed to go down inside the jar and make sure there's no air bubbles in there. If I'm doing certain things, I do that. When I'm doing soup, right, and I ladle soup in there, I, I might shake the jar a little bit or whatever. Sometimes I do, you know, but we got a canning set, and I've got links for stuff that, that I'm going to talk about in the subject or into the show notes today. Uh, and it, the, the canning kit comes with a little special one. You just take a freaking spoon, turn it backwards, and use the handle of a, of a stainless steel spoon, right? That's So if you need to do that, so I do that when I think there's any air pockets. You're supposed to do that. If you're canning broth and you're doing that, you don't understand broth, okay? I'm just saying. And there's people that will do it because they're so afraid. The other thing you're supposed to do, you're supposed to put the canning lids into boiling, simmering water and, 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 and put them in there to, to sanitize them and then take them out with a little magnetic wand that comes with the utensil set for canning. On the rare occasions that we steam bath can, I do that. I do do that. And I'll tell you the reason I do that is that lid doesn't get, you know, the vinegar acid with it. And I use the magnetic wand not so that I don't touch it to contaminate it, but so that I can get it out of the pot. The other thing you can do, though, um, but I don't think it's recommended because I would think that it might affect the uh, the sealant, is if you if we would just wipe them down with vinegar, then you would have the acid there. But I don't think you're supposed to do that. So I do simmer my little jar lids if we, if we uh, acid can, water bath can. Generally, I just don't do that. Generally, I just don't water bath can. Again... If you think you have to do this for pressure canning, and again, when you're doing a water bath can, the, the lid is up out of the water and it's only getting passed by steam and it's only going to get so hot. 
So that's why it's a good policy to do that way. You probably don't even have to do that, but I do. For pressure canning, if you if you're worried about that, you're not getting the process. Okay, just I know I'm going to hear from people on this, um, but that's that's how I can items you'll need. Um, you'll need canning jars and lids. I did not provide links to Amazon to buy ball jars. I think that you would be better served going in them at the store. Uh, I don't think they're on Prime. They're bulky. They're one of the costly things to ship. They, they're fragile. You can get them anywhere. You can get them at Walmart. You can get them at most grocery stores. You can get them at Tractor Supply. I'm sure there's a million other places you can get them, and that's what I recommend you do. I do have links on Amazon for some other stuff that I would say almost anywhere you can buy ball jars. That you'll sell, you like, they'll have ball. They'll have a little kit where you get all this stuff. I do recommend the um, the jar lifter from Ball that usually doesn't come with the little kits. It's a much better one. When you're taking a hot jar out, so this is like a pair of tongs that's designed to grab a jar. And I have a link to the one I recommend uh, next to jar lifter in the show notes. And if you're going to get stuff like that, you can use the ones that come with the cheap kits. It's fine. But I think you'll just be better served and have less likely of dropping a hot jar with the the one from ball so you need a canning uh, a jar lifter you'll need a canning funnel these things are again they're usually available anywhere we have like five or six of them right just because they're useful for i do so many things with ball jars besides canning right i, I, I buy bulk nuts big three pound bag of walnuts and you know they'll fit like four quart jars And I'll use just leave one, and then I'll take the other three and throw them in my vacuum canner, or use the attachment for my vacuum sealer and seal those, and then throw them on the shelf. And then that way they stay, you know, nice and fresh for me. So there's there's so many things I use. I make my tea up, I put it into jars. I never vacuum seal it because it's not in there long enough anyway. Um, but I make all my teas in, in ball jars. I make all my herb blends for my mead making in ball jars. So those little funnels are awesome. And I'm, I'm going to modify one one day so that they fit right over a uh, apple juice bottle for when you're putting dry goods into a mead bottle because the little funnel sometimes is too small. And the, the jar the jar funnels, the ball jar funnels, they, they look almost perfect, but there's a little seam, and stuff always gets stuck in there, and it messes it up. So, um, But the jar canning funnels are great. And, uh, you again, that's really all you really need. Uh, but there is a full canning utensils kit on Amazon. I have a link to as well. And like I said, anywhere you can buy jars, usually they're sitting on the shelf right next to them. It'll probably cost you less to go that way. Um, I want to talk about the different mindset that comes with automated canning. It's what I want to call it. More than electric canning, it's automated canning. You're not sitting there with a timer, right? You're not sitting there waiting for the pet cock to start and then go, okay, now I can start the timer. You push the button, and it either works or if it fails, like the, the, these units won't start if the pressure doesn't build up. They'll just sit there, and they'll eventually give up. So you just set it, and you can walk away. And what that does is it makes doing four to eight jars practical. And I think this is a much better way for the average American family to can. My grandmother was able to take that whole day and can green beans from the garden because her job was being grandma and mom. Mom to my father and his brothers, and grandma to the grandchildren, and a wife to her husband. It was a different time. It was the 1970s and 1980s. We had a garden because if we didn't have a garden, we wouldn't have ate well, to be blunt. We were not poor, but we weren't far off. I think, actually, technically, by the numbers, we probably were poor. I just didn't know it. 
So she spent every day of her life, other than when she went to the store or went to church or went to visit somebody, as a homemaker. And so it made sense to her that there'll be a few year, few days a year or a few weeks a year that I'll work really hard. This week I'm going to do chow chow. This week I'm going to do jellies. Right. This week I'm going to do pickles. This week I'm going to take all of the extra meat that the guys brought home and I'm going to do canned venison. Right. The, 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 it all made sense. Or when there was a big super sale at the market and she could get meat really cheap, she would buy tons of the, the cheap stew meats and, and do up, you know, 20 or 30 cans of stew meat. Or she used to make what she called barbecue. I never had the heart to tell her. It wasn't barbecue, it wasn't chili. I don't know what it was. It was kind of like manwich, but really sweet. I didn't really like it, but I ate it anyway. And it was something that wasn't unique to her. Like the whole area up there, they call that barbecue. Again, it's more like manwich than barbecue, but it has peppers in it and stuff. Um, and she would, you know, make up, you know, 30, 40 jars of that. And by the end of kind of a cycle would begin toward the middle of summer and go into late fall with hunting season. The, the whole basement would be full of canned goods that would last all the way through till that, that time came back around again. So it made sense. She had the time and the need. Where today we usually have two working families, and a lot of you guys even that have moved to the homestead thing, you're not living like my grandparents did. You're, you're much more engaged in the homestead activity. I mean, our homestead was... You didn't have a lot of time. You, you, you went out and had to have a job. You know, my grandmother did a little bit in the garden, but basically the kids did work in the garden. Um, but the garden, we were in a good climate. We had good soils. We didn't do, I mean, maybe three or four weeks out of the year, it had to be watered by hand, and I would have to do that. But the, the garden grew, and all the work was just harvesting plant and harvest. And, and, and then lived lives not like we think of homesteading today. They lived lives of blue collar. You know, Americans. You know, the, the old man had a job. My my father had a job. You know, and my grandmother's main work was cleaning the house and cooking. So there were only these like lumps of big work to be done. Where we're in the situation where we have kind of this steady flow in modern life, and even if we're homesteaders, then most of you guys I know that are doing it full time, you have animals that takes up a lot of your time, etc. So there's this, you know, need to be able to eat three squares a day, etc., and be able to kind of blend in with your life. So when you start doing this, you're able to do that. You're able to just take a portion and can it. And and that straight instead of doing a whole bunch at once, you do a little bit all through the year or through certain times of year when you're more likely to cook certain things. I do a lot of stews, soups, and stocks starting about the end of September all the way up until like April. Then it gets too hot, I don't want to eat that stuff. But when we do need it for cooking, it's just there on the shelf now. So the other thing is you don't just can what you grow or what you harvest when you start doing this. You start looking for those buys on cheap meat. A lot of times this is what I'll do. I'll see... Um, Meats that are like in the markdown section where they take like a dollar a pound, two dollars a pound off them, and they're not really that great of meat, and they need to be cooked or frozen within a day or two. I'll bring that stuff home. I'll put it in a, a, a vacuum bag. I'll vacuum seal and I'll throw it in the freezer in a, in a box until I have enough of it to do up four, four quarts. 
and then I'll cut it up and I'll 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 can beef or pork or whatever like that. And that doesn't take any real work then. And trust me, anything that you know when you when you pressure can meat, you're making something akin to like canned stew meat that you would buy. It's it's soft. It's cooked all the way through. There's nothing left as far as like having a a, a steak or something like that. It's not going to happen, right? So anything that wasn't exactly perfect with that meat, that that kind of meat is kind of perfect for that application. Um, or you, when you go to the the uh, the farmers market and they have something on on you know sale, uh, real cheap toward the end of the year, you might buy enough like just figure out okay this is enough to make four quarts of that. And it's cheap, so I'll buy four quarts to can and two quarts to use fresh. And then while I'm, you know, jacking around with the fresh stuff, I'll just throw that in there, maybe the green beans, like my grandmother, and boom, and then boom, and now you've got four quarts of green beans that are from a farmer's market instead of from Campbell's. And maybe you go back next week and do that again, and you can start cycling like that. That's the mindset here, and you can make again double batches and can half. That's my number one go-to method. I'm going to make bone stock. I fill that giant freaking pot of mine. I make a huge thing of bone stock. And half of it gets canned and half of it you know, can be eaten and sipped and used over the next couple of weeks. Or with bone stock, I might can it all. With bone stock, sometimes we actually do can it in pint, uh, half pints. Because like that's a perfect amount to just kind of dump in a pot, heat up, and then put back in a coffee cup and drink. So here's the thing on botulism I want to kind of give you as an insurance policy before we move on. Botulism is not killed by boiling. And this is why you have to pressure can. So people think boiling can't do anything to help with botulism. People are wrong. Botulism's not the problem. As botulism bacteria reproduce, they create a toxin. That toxin is one of the most one of if not the most lethal toxin on planet Earth. It's not the botulism It's the toxin the botulism creates. If you bring something to a rapid boil for 10 minutes, if it has botulism toxin in, it will, it will boil off the botulism toxin. So a good practice when any of your canned foods that are pressure canned is to heat them to boiling for 5 to 10 minutes as your extra little insurance policy. And people are going to tell me that doesn't work, and I'll just tell you to go read the medical literature, and it'll tell you that it works. Okay. The main reason that people get botulism in today's day and age is not because of improperly home canned food. That fear tactic's bullshit. It's generally from improperly stored potatoes. And if you think about baking a potato, you're not going to hit 212 degrees in a potato when you bake a potato. Now, if you boil a potato, funny thing is no one ever gets botulism from improperly stored potatoes if somebody boils and makes into mashed potatoes. Huh? Got it? Okay, we'll move on. I'm off the soapbox on that. So let's talk about some of my favorite things to can and how to make them. So the canning process is the same pretty much no matter what you do with some exceptions that I'll talk about here. But chicken soup, right? So chicken soup generally, I hope I have some stock around or some broth around that I'll, I'll start adding. But my biggest way that I like to make chicken soup is we'll buy a whole chicken, like a whole roaster chicken, and I'll do just that with it. I'll roast it or... Uh, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll part it out. I'll take the breast and I'll, I'll butter. Actually, I almost always roast a whole chicken. I take the, the cut the backbone out. I put that in a Ziploc bag with all the other trimmings like that and throw it in the freezer. Okay, And I flatten that chicken out, butterfly style. So it's breast up, back down. Season it up however you want to for that. That's a different show, right? 
and uh, I roast that chicken. And I'll take that chicken out when it's you know cooked to temperature and good to go. And I'll take the two breast halves off that night, and then I'll put those on a plate, and then Dorothy and I will each eat one half of the chicken breast with the rest of our food. And with a big roaster chicken, that's that's plenty. The next night, I'll usually take off the leg quarters, and we'll have something with a side dish with chicken leg quarters. I'll reheat those. All of those bones get thrown in a bag in the freezer. And whatever's left of the chicken corpse after that, right, gets thrown in a bag in the freezer. I'll usually do that two or three times, and I'll have two or three chickens like that in a bag. So there's a lot of little pieces of meat and stuff like that when you do this. So then I get my great big stock pot out, add some water and salt and, uh, and, and garlic to it, uh, and some onion. And I usually use dehydrated garlic and onion for this because it's just easy. Throw it all in a pot, and I just simmer it until it's basically a chicken broth that's made by all those bones. I usually will add stock or broth to it to, to enrich it when I'm doing it this way, because you've only gotten so much power there, I guess, so to speak. Uh, if I don't have any around, if I've used it up, um, or if I'm saving it because it's bone stock and I want to do something more with it later in the year, I use a product called Better Than Bullion. That's the best thing I've found for an off-the-shelf product. You do have to refrigerate it. They sell organic version of it, big giant jars at Costco. Wonderful stuff. You also can get that on um, Amazon. Now, I don't do recipes, guys, right? So I, I add a little, I taste the broth, add a little salt, taste the broth, and go, it needs, and I add a little more. You know, I, I add some pepper, I add some parsley, etc. and I get the broth where I want it. Then I chop up fresh parsley, if you have it. Remember, you can make chicken soup without parsley, but fresh parsley is wonderful. Celery and carrots. I put them in the soup, and I cook them until the celery and carrots are soft. I'm done. That's it. You can add anything else you want. Now, a couple cans of crushed tomatoes kind of change this soup and make it like this tomato-y kind of Italian thing going on to it. That's a wonderful addition. If you eat corn, I really don't eat corn very often, but occasionally as a treat, you know, you right at the end, you dump a couple cans of, of corn into it, sweet corn, and just steam those through hot. That's great, but don't can corn it. Just not, don't. Don't, right? So when you've done that, and you're done with your soup, just take half of it and portion it out while it's nice and steaming hot. Hot pack it into your jars that you pulled out of your um, your dishwasher. If you don't have a dishwasher or your dishwasher doesn't allow you to just run just the heat dry setting by itself, you can put your jars into your oven, set your oven to like 140 degrees, to bring your jars up to temperature so they won't break when you dump the hot soup into them, and then process as normal. That's it, right? So you've made soup, you have soup for the next day or two, or maybe every other day for this week or something like that, and you've canned eight quarts. Or you make a lot, and you do two batches of canning, and you have, right, uh, you have eight quarts instead of four, four quarts, right? You have four quarts or eight quarts. Four quarts is more than you think it is. When you start ladling four quarts out of that big stock pot, you have a lot of respect for our grandparents, right? That, that did, you know, quarts and quarts and quarts. You'll realize how much that really is. Um, bone stocks. Um, I have not yet gone to doing bone stocks in the pressure canner itself, just pressure cooking by bone stocks. Um, after hearing Erica's follow-up, I might. But honestly, my favorite way to do bone stock is I just throw a bunch of bones with some salt and some apple cider vinegar into my big pot. And a part of this is because I have a gas stove. And it's, you know, once I get it boiling, you mix it, and I can turn that thing down, and I'll, you know, I'll run it for however long I think. Now, uh, with, with chicken and stuff like that, I usually 
do those for like four to six hours. Beef, I'll usually run beef bone stocks for like 12 hours, and I think that's long enough. And again, what Erica says backs it up. The other way I'll do it if I don't want it on my range, I just take a crock pot, and usually I make enough, I need two crock pots, and we have like five of them. So I take two or three crock pots, and I divide my bones up, I cover them with water, add a little bit of salt, and some apple cider vinegar, I don't know, a couple dashes, right? And I just simmer it. I simmer it, and, and you set it on, on I, I always do this with pressure, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we call them uh, crock pots. I turn it as high a setting as it has until it's really screaming hot, and then I set it down to low, and I keep it on if it's really, really kind. A lot of times your crock pots, even on low, they once they get the temperature up, they get really, really a rapid boil, and that can cause too much evaporation and make it clean up a pain in the ass, so then I'll go down to low, And I just kind of keep an eye on it. So even with a crock pot, I'm kind of watching it. And then you just, you know, take what you want to use for cooking or whatever and take the rest of it and can it. Same process. Hot into the hot jar. It's the easy way to go. Squash soup. Uh, when I, by this, I mean butternut squash soup. Butternut squash soup is, is, is simply amazing. Um, and I'll tell you another thing. If you're a Costco customer... And you should be. When we have, and I've got some pretty nice butternuts coming out this year. The squash bugs haven't killed me yet on them. Um, so when we have butternut squash, I always use my own fresh butternuts. I used to buy butternut squash to do what I'm about to tell you with. And, and I'll tell you how to do this. But basically, you split them in half. You rub them with some oil, salt, and pepper. And you roast them in the oven. I think it takes about 30 minutes until they're fork tender. And then you scrape all of the squash out of it. And then you go forward with the recipe. But I'm down at Costco one day, and I look, and they have a great big clamshell of cubed-up organic butternut squash. And when I do the math, it costs less than buying a whole butternut squash at the regular market, especially if you buy an organic one when you should, right? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not doing this anymore. So whenever we're going to do squash soup, now if we don't have our own butternuts, I just go down to Costco and pick up as many clamshells as that as I want. And I roast those with oil, salt, and pepper in the oven. The other thing I roast is apples. And I like to use a mix of like Fuji's and Granny Smith's because it gives them tartness. How many? I don't know. It depends on how much you're making. But I would say about equal amounts of squash and apples. Okay? And you do the same thing with the apples. You coat them with olive oil, salt, and pepper, and they all go two big baking trays, one on each shelf, in the oven about 30 minutes until they're soft. At about 15 minutes, swap the racks, okay? While you're doing that, you get your big soup pan, right? You put some uh, some some uh, oil in there, and you use, depending on how much you're making, two to four to six to even eight big white onions. You want like a sweet variety, like Vidalia is really great for this. You chop those up coarsely, they don't have to be that fine, and you saute them until they're translucent in your pan. When everything's done in the the, the uh, oven, you take it out, and I'll get to the apples in a second. But basically, you now add chicken stock. I don't know, four quarts, as much as you need to cover everything, right, to the pot. And you add your, you jump, dump your, your roasted squash in there, and then you put your apples in there. The way I learned to make this recipe, you basically cored the apples and baked them in halves, With the skin on. Now you got to get the skin off. Okay. What I do is I take my regular peeler 
Uh, my, my preferred, it's made by OXO. That's like for peeling potatoes. And I grab my apple and I peel it like old school, like a spiral. I peel my apple and I take one of those apple cutter core things. You know what I'm talking about? You push down on the apple and it makes sections and it leaves the core. I'll put a link to both of those products in the show notes today to Amazon for you. Plump, I throw the core to, out to the birds to eat. Okay? And I take those sections and I rub those with olive oil and salt. So when they come out of the oven, dump, done. You bring that to a simmer, kind of blending all the flavors together. And then you take, you, 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 you can use any blender for this, but really, um, It's much better if you have a Vitamix or a big, heavy, powerful blender like that. And you start processing it in your blender. What I usually do is I get a second pot out. I don't have one as big as the first one, but it's big enough to get kind of this thing going on. I use a four-cup Pyrodex you know, measuring cup, the old-school glass, because that can handle the heat. And it's got a big, healthy handle on it instead of using a stupid ladle. And I put that whole thing in there, and I scoop that up, and I dump that in my Vitamix. I only fill it about halfway because this is hot stuff. I process it, right? Okay, then you dump it into your second pot. You keep doing this, and flat pot's almost full. By that time, when you fill your Vitamix, you should be able to have the, the pot empty with just the last one. If not, get another pot, right? Because it's something that has to happen here, for me anyway, for this to be right. Eventually, maybe you have two reserve pots in your giant pot, your Vitamix is full, you're processing everything, dump everything back into the original pot. Bring it back to a simmer and stir it because, you know, when you do different processing in batches with that Vitamix, some of it has more apple, some of it has more squash, some of it has more onion. When you mix it all back together, you blend it even. Now that it's blended even, clean up your pots, set your power pressure cooker I mean, I don't use that. I use the shard pressure cooker, right? Set your pressure cooker up. Get your jars out of the oven because you just all you do then turn the oven down to like the like the warm setting. Throw your jars in there after the squash and apples came out. Your jars are nice and hot. Fill up your four quart jars. Throw them in your thing. Run your canning process. Now you have squash soup for a couple days, and you put four quarts away. Or if you do a double batch, you do eight quarts away. Very very simple. Uh, Cubed venison is one of my favorite things. Um, I like when I do meat to generally do the hot pack method. You can do cold packed meat, but what I always do with my meat, just because I feel better about it, I saute it. Um, so basically brown it in a pan. So cut it into pieces, about bite-sized pieces. I usually use a little bit of salt and pepper on it, and I saute it in a pan. And then... You pack that in your warm jars and pour hot broth over it, hot broth or stock. When I do deer, if I have my way and my time, I take some of the deer bones, I cook them in the oven until they're roasted, and I make bone stock from them, and I use that when I can my meat. I'm not afraid to cold pack canned meat. It's not why. And I, almost every meat I do this to. <laughs> Even though when you're done canning meat, It is going to be really, really soft. Like think, you know, sat in the, in the, in the crock pot all day kind of soft. It's going to be like pot roast soft. You still have an opportunity to develop flavor. And once the canning's done, that's not happening. You can't take canned meat, throw it in a skillet and brown it and develop flavor. But if you brown it before you can it, even though the brown kind of disappears, the flavor's in there. 
So that's why I do that. So I'm not even going to go into exactly how to do this other than what I just said. You brown it in a pan. You season it the way you like it. You put it into the jar. You add hot, hot broth or water. You can do water if you don't have broth. And it'll make broth for you, by the way, um, because you've got all that wonderful meat in there. And you process it. Now, look, anything you ever can, you should look up a recipe, a known recipe for time and pressure based on your altitude, and follow that recipe. Even if that recipe says, we do not warrant our recipes for electric pressure canners, that's because they don't know everything you know now, and they don't know what an electric pressure canner is. Okay? So cubed meat, beef stew is one of my favorite things to do. And, I mean, I make beef stew, like, so basic and simple. And, again, I get people like, how do you make this? This is amazing. I take bacon grease or lard, depending on what I have, and I put it in the bottom of the skillet, you know, a, a, a thin layer. I add onions to it. I saute the onions. I take my cubed up beef or deer meat or lamb or whatever I'm making, and I usually roll it a little bit in some flour. Even me, even Mr. Paleo, yes, I roll it a little bit in flour, and uh, I, I brown it. And then once it's all browned, I cover it with water. Usually I use some beef stock, or if I'm out of beef stock or beef bone stock, I'll use some better than bullion, uh, the beef version, the organic stuff. And, uh, you know, I make basically like a, a, looks like a big bowl of beef soup. Okay. And then I add carrots and <gasps> potatoes. Yes. Cause I don't eat this that often. And it's just not right without potatoes. You can eat some potatoes now and then. I add carrots and potatoes. I usually use a big handful of, of, of parsley. Um, I use fresh garlic. But here's what I do. So you saute your onions and your lard or bacon grease. You get your meat going. When your meat's almost ready to add water, then add your chopped garlic or you're going to burn your garlic. Right? And you can look up any beef stew recipe you want. But once the beef stew's done, right, we take some aside that we're going to use in the next day or two or the next week, and we process the rest into the can. Here's the rub. Yes, I might dust a little bit of powder uh, flour on the meat, just a tiny bit, when I brown it. It won't really make an effect on everything. It won't really thicken it. You now have not beef stew. You have beef soup. Okay? If you thicken your beef stew and can it, it can make... It looks like dog food when you take it out. It's not very nice. So you, you, you then hot process can your beef soup, and you just do that, and you label it. And then you take the other stuff that you're going to reserve in your pan and you thicken it with a roux, like a flour and butter roux or just a flour and water uh, thickener. So you add your flour then and you thicken what you're not going to can. When you take your quart jar out, okay, and you're going to heat it up to a boil on your stove, you take a little glass of water, you put a tablespoon of flour in there, you add some water to it, you mix it up really, really good until it's a thin slurry. Once, once your stew is starting to simmer, you stir and slowly pour it in and you thicken it when you eat it. Huh? Very simple. Uh, you can do chili that way. You can do anything that way. Anything you have a thicken, just wait. And another thing we, we haven't done yet, but I think we will do as we produce more and more of them is whole quail. And I would process them just like according to a recipe for chicken with bone in. And, uh, Brad Davies tells me that three fit perfectly into a quart jar. 
Um, I kind of feel like more than three would fit into a chord chart. I think it all depends on how you put them in there. Um, but that's kind of it. I didn't want this class, this to be like a class on canning in of itself, but more about the mindset of electric canning with basic knowledge you need to start canning. There are certain things that you have to follow different rules for. Jellies, you know, have a whole process to make a jelly. Since I don't eat jelly because it's so much sugar, I've never done jelly, so I, I don't know how to do it. But you just follow the recipe and do it. Um, I'm not big on pickles. I don't eat enough pickles, I don't think, to, to make them. Uh, I rather would make fermented pickles in a, in a crock if I'm going to make pickles. Uh, so I, I don't do a lot of stuff I talk about today. Mostly what I do are soups, stews, and broths. And again, if we find windfalls at farmer's markets for vegetables that can well, and green beans to me are one of the vegetables that can the best. And uh, they're also one of the easiest ones to grow. Um, mushrooms, I, I, you know, you do the same type, look up a recipe, but you have to pressure can mushrooms unless you do them with vinegar, which I wouldn't want to do. If I one day walked into, you know, uh, the grocery store and they were selling even the white button mushrooms for some stupid low price, I might load up a grocery cart of them and, you know, put up 12 quarts over a Saturday with, you know, not that much work to do. But this is the kind of things that I do. So my final thoughts today is... Don't be intimidated by canning. The modern world has intimidated the average American to where we don't do anything anymore. People get their batteries in their cars installed. Now, look, that's okay, as long as you know how to do it. The last time I needed a new set of batteries for my pickup truck, they came with free installation. So I'm not going to be a dummy. And, and, and you know, So I, I went in and I said, here, go ahead, do it. You know, I actually went in to buy the batteries. And the guy says, well, it's, you know, do you want us to install for it? I'm like, nah, I can do that. He goes, is your truck here? I go, yeah. He goes, we can have it done in 10 minutes, and it's free. The batteries cost the same. We'll take the cores rate. Of, go ahead, right? But we, people are afraid to do it. Like, you're going to electrocute yourself changing a battery. Look at YouTube. You can hurt yourself changing a battery, but it ain't that hard, right? We've been intimidated for doing anything for ourselves. We have people that are afraid to learn basic electrical work for the same reason. Listen, you're not going to electrocute yourself installing an electrical outlet if you haven't put power down to the leg yet. Now, please know what you're doing before that. Please learn how to use a multimeter to make sure there's no power there, etc. But you don't have to be afraid of it. People are afraid to change their own oil. They think they'll break something. People are afraid to do anything. When I was a kid, every little kid broke everything by taking it apart to see how it worked and never got it back together. But we learned how to do stuff. We developed confidence. Canning is something your great-grandmother did. Your grandmother probably did. And your great-great-grandmother probably did. If they can do it, you could do it. Don't be afraid of it. And don't think you have to use their technology. Your grandmother, right, used that rotary dial phone. Your great-grandmother probably wrote a lot of written letters by hand. You still communicate with people, but you use modern technology. Don't be afraid of modern technology. And don't be afraid to fit... And I wouldn't call it ancient, but an old school practice like canning into a modern lifestyle by parting it out in small pieces throughout the year. All right, so I hope you enjoyed today's show. With that in mind, if you did enjoy today's show and you want to support the work I do, consider becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade. It is the best way to support this show and the work that I do. Simply go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and when you look at all the discounts you'll get, you'll realize what a win-win situation it is. And keep an eye on your memberships, guys, because uh, PayPal has uh, been really bad about canceling renewals when you update your payment method or don't update your payment. With Either way, they do it at a certain point. And uh, if you don't sign back up, I lose you as a member. 
Keep an eye on your emails if you're an expired member. I do occasionally run win-back programs. Everybody else, come a member first. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, and First Responders all qualify for a discount. Just email me at TS, email me at jagatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service and I'll get back to you. If you ever send me an email like that and you don't hear back in a day or two maximum, resend it. Something's wrong. If you use multiple emails, try a different email address or something like that. Again, make sure TSPC is in any subject for any email you send me because if the spam folder eats it, I will find it. Next up, that's the best way to support me, but the easiest way to support the Survival Podcast. Do your shopping on Amazon through tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. tspaz.com. Go there, click a link, end up on Amazon, buy whatever you're going to buy. We get, we get paid for it. You get your stuff. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't even really take any more time. But I do a review every day, and today's review, I hope actually... I hope it, this actually shows how committed I am to making sure that these are not just for the purpose of me selling stuff on Amazon. The, the, the business model is if I do something, you'll go look at it, you'll be more likely to click a link, and if you buy something that day from Amazon, I'll be more likely to get credit. But I always try to bring education to it. So yesterday I said I would do this. I have posted today my setup for scoping the Benjamin 392 uh, or 397. The 92 is the 22 caliber, and the 97 is the 77 caliber, 177 caliber. And this is not a gun that's designed to be scoped, and there's a bunch of different little ricky-dicky ways to do it. And I have come up with what I think is the best setup. It uses an Air Venturi Picatinny, uh, Picatinny uh, scope intermount, uh, with special, um, clamps that clamp onto the tubular, uh, receiver of the Benjamin rifle. And then the Pictimi route goes on top of that. Uh, it's topped with a UTG 4x32 1-inch Hunter mill dot scope that's made for air rifles. That scope comes with rings, but they're for, you know, most air rifles have a, a, a slot mount scope, like a, a clamp-on scope. You can't do that here. You really shouldn't. There's another type of mount for the Benjamin. I mentioned don't get that. Get what I've got there. And then, so there's a set of Vortex Optics 1-inch low rifle scope rings. This is the only stable way to mount a scope on this gun that I've found that makes sense to let you use a scope of about the size of the UTG 4x32, uh, which is pretty standard in, in a fixed 4x32 size, um, and keep the profile low enough to get your head down on the gun so you're not like craning your neck and you know, not having good form. With the rifle, it's still a little higher than I would like, but it's it's good. I give you some options. There's a video today. It talks about you know you can use medium mounts. You can even get the scope to come a little further back if the eye relief's not right for you. It's fine for me, but uh, by doing a couple different little tricks and ways you can do it. Uh, and if you watch today's video, you'll get to see me getting bit by turkeys and get bit really good one time too. So, uh, but no turkeys were harmed in the creation of the video. Uh, but it'll be fun. Now, here's why I say I hope you understand it's not just so I can sell stuff. I said I would do this yesterday, and today, when I went to find the parts on Amazon, the Picatinny intermount for the scope was not available. And Benjamin Crossman make one, two under their name. They're the exact same thing. Both of them are sold out. I'm like, fine, I go to Pyramid Air. Yeah, they have it there. I'll link. No, they're sold out. Uh, I start going around, and everybody that sells this thing sold out. I finally found Airgun Depot has them in stock for $27.99. Um, 
I know you guys like to support me, but don't not get this if you want to set your gun up this way. Go ahead and, and, and get it from Air Gun Depot. Now, if you mention us in the, the notes when you place your order and they got, you know, 10, 15 of those just today from this, maybe I can contact them with a little street cred and another discounter. They have a pretty good array of stuff there. Maybe we could get you guys a disc. I don't know, right? But whenever we send you somewhere, if you let people know where you got sent from, It gives me a little bit easier of a doorway to get those discounts for the MSP. But hopefully you guys will enjoy that. I hope you enjoyed the video. My wife laughs pretty good when the turkey bites me in the ass. Yes, directly in the ass. So if you want to see Jack Spear go bit in the ass by a turkey, go to T-Spaz today. If you want to support the show, go to T-Spaz and, uh, and take care of things through T-Spaz when you do your shopping on Amazon today. Uh, next up, I want to remind you guys about the uh, TSP business directory. We have a business directory for community members only. Uh, very, very inexpensive way to advertise your business, a place to find people and be found to do business within the community. Lots of entrepreneurs in this community. Today's, uh, today's supporter is Honey Locust Home. Uh, they make soap, incredible soap. They're going to be teaching a soap, how to make soap clinic at my workshop here in October as well. By the way, we love their soap, especially their Comfrey Monster. So check them out today. And that brings us to today's closing song. So I, I always try to find a song, if I can, that kind of ties into the show or has a deep meaning or something like that. Today's no deep meaning. I guess it could a little bit here. Uh, this is a song from 1980, and it did not make the top 10. It did not make the top 20. I think it rose up on the charts to number 41 back in 1980. But you wouldn't have known it. If you were driving around in a car, listening to country music radio in the southern United States, for me this would have been Florida, been you know, ridden around by my mom, my dad, etc. Uh, you would have heard this song a lot in 1980, into 1981, even a little bit stuck around in 82. It's called Rosie's Restaurant, a.k.a. the Food Blues, by a guy that many of you, maybe you've even heard the song, or you don't think you've heard it. It's not Alice's Restaurant. It's a different thing. Rosie's Restaurant. Alice's Restaurant's from the 60s. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll play that someday. This is from the 80s. Bobby Bear. And a lot of people that have heard this song don't know it's Bobby Bear. A lot of people who heard this song don't even know they heard this song. They hear it and go, oh, I remember that. And the concept is that the waiter basically tells them there's nothing he can eat in a restaurant because it's all bad for him. And I thought that it's a funny song, and sometimes we need to be a little bit lighthearted. And this song gave people a laugh. And in 1980, this country needed a laugh. It was a lot like today as far as economic problems, but in a way, it was a lot worse. You know, this was before you know, what they called Ronald Reagan's morning in America. This was a point where the 70s had beaten our ass. And uh, humor was something. Another song I thought about playing for you guys today is TV Dinners and The way you know, people lived on those things in the 70s and 80s, and they really were TV dinners at the time. Um, but this one is the one that won out today, and I just want you to listen to it and have a laugh. And the reason I picked it for today is not just because it's about food, but because of all the fear. I can't pressure can an electric canner. My children will grow, I don't know, elephant ears out of their butt and die or something. No, no. You do things right, you can be safe with canning, and you can eat canned foods. And you can eat just about anything if you do it in the right times and moderations and portions and things like that. Not everything's going to kill you. Not even the stupid GMOs that I really wish would go away. We can't live in fear. And one way to face fear sometimes is to have a laugh at it. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. What do you want? 